All right, you can put your hymnals away and take out your Bibles. You can turn to our sermon passage, which is John 13, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him, given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Thus ends the reading of the Lord's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. Lord, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word as it goes forth. May it accomplish the purpose for which you sent it and not return to you void. Lord, I pray that you would open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to receive your word for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, may it be your truth and your truth only that is proclaimed. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way uh, and simply speak to your people. Uh, Lord, be glorified in us now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up again in John's Gospel, and we are moving now into what is an absolutely glorious section of Scripture. Now, once again, you'll notice that we are only around the halfway mark of John's Gospel, and yet we are now already in the very final week prior to the crucifixion. And so we see John devotes a large portion of his account to the time that Jesus spent with his disciples on the night before he was arrested. And so John shows us, perhaps in a deeper way than nearly anywhere else in Scripture, 
the true heart of our Savior for his disciples and by extension all those whom the Father had given to him. And so really if you wanted to get a window or a portrait uh, into the heart of Christ, there is not much of a richer portrait you can find than this account here of what is called the Upper Room Discourse. And so it is to this that we are turning now. Now, just to set the stage for us, Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, In our imagination, uh, let us climb the stairs leading to an upper room on a house in Jerusalem. And here we can eavesdrop on what transpired during the late afternoon and evening of the day before the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Thirteen men have come together for a Passover meal. One will leave early on a mission of betrayal. The remaining 12 will later make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and from there they will be scattered. One will be taken by force on a nightmare journey. By this time tomorrow, Friday, the lifeless body of Jesus of Nazareth will be carried into a garden tomb. But this is not the end, just the end of the beginning. For early on Sunday morning, he will rise again from the dead. He now lives forever as prince and savior. All this is still to come, for now we have arrived in the upper room. Close quote. So with that introduction, you can turn with me to John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus has loved his own. He has loved those whom the Father had given him, and he has loved them to the end, uh, to the end of his ministry, perhaps even saying to the uttermost. And so Jesus is now about to give a sign of his love for them. He is going to wash his disciples' feet. So they are here now in the upper room. This is a private event. Evidently, there has been no servant who has greeted them and who has come to do this for them. Nor had they been willing to do this for Jesus or for one another. And in fact, far from having an attitude of this sort, Luke's gospel account tells us that during this upper room discourse, the disciples were actually having an argument about which of them was the greatest. Now, I would argue it was unlikely that such a dispute would have arisen after Jesus washed their feet. So very likely, it was before Jesus had done this. And perhaps this argument is even what prompted Jesus to do this. So we'll expand more on this momentarily, but before we get to that, let's look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, leave that hanging there, um, just comment on this as an aside, uh, we see here the devil had put it into si uh, Judas's heart, Simon's son, to betray Christ. We, we are reminded again that the cross, in at least some sense, was Satan's plan, Satan's scheme. It was satanic influence which had prompted Judas to betray Christ. Now, if you remember back to the account of Mary pouring out the oil on Christ's feet, uh, we had seen there that Judas had already been a thief. 
Uh, he had already not been a great character, right? Stealing from the money bag and even shaming Mary uh, with false piety, pretending that he cared about the poor. Uh, and here we see as well, even more than this, in the plot against Christ, that Judas was being steered by Satan, by the devil. Now, for us, it might initially seem somewhat frightening to think that uh, the devil is at work in such a way, right, that satanic or demonic influence can really be steering people. Uh, that may be frightening to us, but let us see here that this story, more than any, demonstrates the power and sovereignty of God over Satan. The betrayal of Judas was not a surprise to Christ. The cross was not a surprise to Christ. He knew that he had come for this very purpose, as he has said repeatedly. And so whatever designs or schemes that Satan had in mind, whatever was going on in his mind as he influenced Judas to do this, we see that God was sovereign over it. Just as Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so it is supremely encouraging to know that not only can God ordain and use evil actions for his good purposes, but that he has done so. And so if you are ever in a place of despair, perhaps in the wake of a tragedy, if you ever find yourself wondering, how could God possibly have a good purpose for this? Well, just remember that the very scheming of the devil to perpetrate the greatest evil that has ever been done, right, the murdering of the only perfect man to walk this earth, that this turned out to actually be the very means that God was using to bring salvation. The very greatest evil, the plans and schemes of Satan and the sovereignty of God turned out to be serving the highest good. God is sovereign over Satan, sovereign over history, and God has declared that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. So those who are in Christ have no need to fear that the devil will successfully thwart the plans of God. God is sovereign over history. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now that is a loaded statement if there was one. Right? Notice what he says. Jesus knew that the Father had given what? All things into his hand. He knew that he was returning to reign at the right hand of the Father. Right? What do you expect to follow that kind of sentence? Right? If you didn't know this story, what are you thinking comes next after the statement? All things are given into his hand. He is going back to reign at the right hand of the Father. What comes next after that? He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, 
and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Can you imagine the stunned silence? Particularly if we're right in assuming that the disciples had only moments ago been arguing over which of them was the greatest. Right, the argument or discussion still ongoing as Jesus rises up and it slowly peters out and turns to silence as Jesus takes off his outer garment, assumes a posture of a servant, and then the silence is broken by the sound of water being poured into a basin. As Jesus then bends down to willingly perform the task that none of them seem to have wanted to do. He began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, the unspoken assumption is that this is backwards, right? You are the Lord. I am your servant. And would you wash my feet? Like Peter has the view of John the Baptist, if you remember what he said, that the Christ is one of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Right? I am not worthy to do the lowliest thing for you. And so Peter's asking, Lord, would you come and wash my feet? Feet. I should wash your feet. I should serve you in any way, whatever way I can, and you would come and do this thing, this lowly thing for me. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. But Peter gets indignant. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. No way, right? This, this just does not feel right. I, I, can't, I can't go along with this, right? You shall never wash my feet. And truly on one level here, Peter's instincts are commendable, right? At the thought of our Lord, our master, our king, the thought of him stooping to do something lowly, in one sense, ought to cause everything in us to cry out, no way. Not you. It, it is mind-blowing to think of the Lord of glory humbling himself, coming not to be served, but to serve. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, I think it is obvious that Jesus meant something more than simply the physical foot washing here. Uh, Jesus is not saying that all of his disciples need to literally have their feet washed by him personally in order to be saved, in order to have a portion, an inheritance. But rather, I believe this statement shows that Jesus is now acting out a parable. There is symbolism here. And in fact, this entire sequence 
gives us a beautiful picture of the incarnation. When God became a man. Now we are entering into the season of Advent. And so as we celebrate again the incarnation of our Lord, right, our creator God entering into his own creation, um, this is what we are celebrating. And so turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We see an excellent parallel here. Uh, Philippians 2 contains a section that is known as the Carmen Christi, uh, or the hymn to Christ. Uh, It's thought to have likely been an early hymn uh, or poem or saying, uh, which was already well known at this period and then quoted here by Paul. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is an account of the incarnation, humiliation, sufferings, and exaltation of Christ. And so notice how this gets acted out here in miniature in John 13. For what we have is Jesus, the Master, the Lord, getting up, leaving his place, his spot at the table, not counting his position a thing to be grasped, but rather he empties himself. He takes off his outer garments, dresses as a servant, quite literally taking the form of a servant, humbling himself in order to come and to serve and to cleanse his people. So while we, like Peter, might be astounded at this humility and may protest, Lord, would you come to do this for me? Would you die for me? While we may be tempted to protest, saying our Lord should not be subjected to such as this. The fact is that unless we are washed by Christ, we have no portion with him. For we need cleansing. Not just the cleansing of dirty feet. We need cleansing from sin. A cleansing that can only be accomplished by the blood of Christ. For unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part with him. There is no portion for us with Christ, no inheritance for us, unless we are washed by Christ. So just to get very, very simple, very practical here, 
What does that look like for us? How are we washed? How are we cleansed by Christ? The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, turning to him as Lord, as Savior, as Master, the promise is made that they will be forgiven. They will be cleansed. They will receive the benefits of what Christ has done. These benefits are received by faith. Those who believe in Jesus in this way are washed by him. They are cleansed of their sin. And this is one of the things that is represented by baptism. Acts twenty-two sixteen. after Paul's conversion on the Damascus road and the restoration of his sight, Ananias instructed him, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And this continues to be the invitation to all who will come. Be cleansed by Christ. Turn from your sin. Call upon his name. Come and be washed. Come, be forgiven, and join the people of God. Let's continue in John with verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, O Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Uh, Peter, again, in his typical exuberance, uh, now flips to the opposite extreme, saying, Lord, wash, wash my hands, wash my head as well. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus tells Peter he is already clean, and so is everyone here except for one. We see in verses 10 and 11, and you, plural, are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So when Jesus says you are clean in this way, all, right, all except one, uh, what he means here is that you are all justified. You are all regenerate, uh, been given new life. You are forgiven. You are true believers except for one of you, that one being Judas. So being clean in this sense means being saved. Uh, and so once somebody has been saved, they don't need to be resaved every single time they sin. Right, that fundamental cleansing does not need to be repeated. Uh, rather, only their feet need to be cleansed again. As John Piper puts it, the repeated washing of the feet represents our daily confession of sin and turning to Jesus for ongoing application of what he accomplished at the cross, our cleansing and forgiveness. And so Peter needs the cleansing power of Christ to continue to work in his life. Right, that initial cleansing was not just a one-time thing, but would continue to work in his life in order to cleanse and to sanctify him. And this is true for all believers. Christians are forgiven completely, once and for all, through what Christ has done. 
and Christians must also continue growing in holiness in this life. We must continue to confess sin. Christ continues working in us, for up until the day that we see Christ face to face, we must continue to battle sin. The Christian life is one of growing in godliness. We must continue to battle sin in our lives. And so to this end, we must be keeping short accounts of sin, seeking to root it out in our lives, to identify it and to put it to death. If you come to church and you come to our time of confession and you can't think of anything to confess, I would submit to you that the reason is likely not that you've had a perfect week, but rather the reason you have nothing to confess is that you're not paying close enough attention. Examine yourself. Find those areas where indwelling sin still has a hold on you. Pray that the Lord would reveal your blind spots, that you can repent, bring every area of life into conformity with God's will. Let's continue on. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, write you, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do also, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, every once in a while, Scripture will directly apply or explain a section for us, which makes the preacher's job very, very easy. Now, we have more to it as we've covered, but notice that Jesus himself draws the application that we are meant to get from his example. And that's what he says, that if he, our Lord and teacher, has done this, has washed the feet of his disciples, then they ought to be willing to do the same for one another, right? For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. No servant is greater than their master. So follow the reasoning here. If our master humbled himself, if our master took the posture of a servant, if our master did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but got up from his place of exaltation, emptied himself, and became a servant, then how much more ought we to be humble? How much more ought we to be willing to serve? A servant is not greater than his master. So if our master came and served, then what in the world would we think exempts us from such a duty? Follow Christ's reasoning. Take in the fullness of who he is. The eternal Son of God, 
through whom and for whom all things were made, emptied himself, took on a human nature, was born in a lowly condition, grew up in humble circumstances, lived a life of service, willingly, in this case, took on the dirty job others didn't want to do. And he displays the ultimate act of service and humiliation by dying a brutal, undignified death, not for anything he had done, but for us. And so if our master, if our Lord has done all of that, then there is absolutely nothing that we can ever say is beneath us. Right? Nothing that is that we are too important to do. Right? This seems to be the attitude of the disciples. We've seen on multiple occasions that they've been caught arguing about which of them is the greatest, which of them should be exalted and therefore be served by others. It is a worldly way of thinking that says that the greater are simply to be served by the lesser. A king is too important to scrub toilets. That is beneath him. That is servant's work. And so we tend to clamor for status. Right? It's the intern's job to make coffee or sweep the floor or whatever else. For us to do that would feel demeaning. Right? That's below our rank. And so we clamor and quarrel and argue about who is the greatest but Jesus explains that that is not how greatness looks in the kingdom of God. Matthew 20, verse 25. The mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked for her sons to be given seats of honor in Christ's kingdom. One at his left, one on his right. Now when the other disciples heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called to, him, to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness looks different in the kingdom of God than it does in the world. Authority looks different in the kingdom of God than in the world. Christ himself is the example Christ himself is the greatest authority, the most exalted, majestic, and honored one. And he came down not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. For God the Son, to empty himself and to become a man, is a greater step of humility than anything of which you are capable 
A king cleaning toilets is as nothing in comparison to God the Son becoming a man, becoming a servant, giving himself as a ransom. No servant is greater than his master. So there is nothing that is beneath us. Nothing that we are too dignified to consider doing. In fact, when you humble yourself and take the path of seemingly lowly service to others, the fact is, then you are on the path toward exaltation. For it is then that you are walking the path that Christ says makes someone truly great in the kingdom. For in this you are walking in the footsteps of your Savior. And there is nothing more glorious than getting to imitate the Savior. And so whatever your life situation or your role is right now, take heart. For though it may not be very glamorous by worldly standards, always remember that worldly standards are not God's standards. Whatever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, you have the opportunity to imitate Christ. To display Christ-like humility. To embrace his mindset towards service. I think we may be very surprised to find out who has the seats of honor in Christ's consummated kingdom. It may very well be people that we have never heard of. People who were not famous or particularly influential in their day. People who never made it into any church history books, but simply and faithfully modeled the example of their savior. Serving faithfully in what they were given to do. Living in humility, not looking only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Greatness looks different in the kingdom of God. And authority looks different in the kingdom of God. As Jesus said to his disciples, the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over one another. But it shall not be so among you. Those whom God has given authority are not to lord it over others. For Jesus himself, our master and teacher, our Lord and our God, did not come to be served but to serve. He is therefore the model for leadership and authority. He is the model for church leadership. He is to be the model for civil leadership. And he is to be the model for home leadership. All genuine authority is delegated by God. And it is therefore accountable to him and is intended for the benefit of those who are under it. Civil magistrates are called God's servants for our good, Romans 13, 4. Church elders are called shepherds, right? They are to feed, tend, protect, and care for the sheep. Husbands are called to model Christ, who loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Parental authority is given for the care and nurture of children. 
all authority is given for the benefit of those who are under it. It is not to be lorded over others. Now, one of the ways that sin can make this go off the rails is when we begin to treat our office, that is our position or our assignment, as if it were simply intended for our benefit. But authority is not to be lorded over those in our charge. God has given this authority, and we are therefore accountable to him for how we use it. We must rule well. We must be aiming at his glory. So husbands, do not lord it over your wives, but lead like Christ in humility, in self-sacrifice, in a willingness to be poured out unto death. Now, another way that authority can go wrong is when it gets pushed to the opposite extreme. Uh, People often see the abuses on one end of the spectrum, and the tendency can be to swing the pendulum all the way to the opposite end. And I believe this is what certain forms of servant leadership will do. Right? They, they see that Christian authority, Christian leadership, is to be of a self-sacrificial sort, but they end up defining self-sacrifice as constant deferral. Right? So, for example, within a marriage, they might agree that the husband is to be the leader, but because he's to be a self-sacrificing servant leader, they define this as meaning that he must constantly, consistently defer to whatever his wife chooses. So interestingly, by the time they have finished with their concept of servant leadership, it ends up looking suspiciously similar to the biblical concept of submission. That is not what Christ is calling us to. Christian leadership must absolutely be humble and self-sacrificing, but it must also be leadership. Your definition of servant leadership must not be a convenient excuse to abdicate your responsibility. Those whom God entrusts with authority, he expects to use it, and to use it in a way that will be a blessing to all those who are under that authority. So husbands, lead in your homes. Lead by example. Show your family through how you live your life, through the things that you prioritize, that devotion to Christ matters. That worship matters. That Christ's church matters. That discipleship matters. Show them what true godliness looks like. Lead by your example. True biblical leadership leads, and it leads like Christ, humbly, self-sacrificially, and by example. What this means is that true leaders must lead from the front, not from the back. What do I mean by that? It's the difference between somebody saying, go and do that thing. Do you picture a, a boss or a general commanding his troops, go do that thing. I'm going to stay here. You go do that thing. That's leading from the back. Whereas leading from the front says, come and help me do this thing. I'm on the front lines 
with you. I am the first into the charge. Come, join me in doing this thing. And so you notice Christ didn't simply tell his disciples, be humble, serve one another, be willing to put others' needs before your own, but he modeled it. He lived it out. He led from the front, showing, doing, setting an example, and inviting us to follow. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done. So brothers and sisters, let us serve as Christ has served. This call to Christ-like service of others is not just for leadership, but for all. May we have the attitude and mind of Christ. May we display a willingness to serve others, to be generous with ourselves, with our time and our resources. Not seeking after worldly gain or exaltation, but to simply glorify our Father in heaven, to please him to follow the example of our Savior, to aim in everything we do to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we have needs in this faith community. Real ways that we could serve Christ and serve like Christ seeking to bless our brothers and sisters. We have practical needs like setup and cleanup. We presently have some wonderfully servant-hearted people making all of this happen every week. Come and join them. Come early. Stay late. Find ways to serve your brothers and sisters and get to know one another. We see in the scriptures that the church is meant to be more than a gathering of strangers who happen to sit near each other once a week. That is commuters on a bus. That is not a family of faith. We are instead a body. We are a spiritual temple, a family of faith, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we are called to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, I would submit to you that those things are next to impossible to fulfill if you don't know what burdens your brothers and sisters are carrying. You cannot help bear them if you are not aware of them. You cannot rejoice if you don't know what they're rejoicing over. You cannot weep if you don't know what they are weeping over. So let us get to know one another. Let us be involved in each other's lives. Let us serve each other serve our communities, and serve our families to the glory of God. The Christian ethic is more than just the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is do unto others as Christ has done unto you. Now, of course, Christ alone is the Savior, and his work was once and for all but we are to follow Christ's pattern. He emptied himself, left behind his place of honor, took the form of a servant, and laid down his life in service of others. 
We, as Christ's followers, his disciples, are to go and do likewise. If our master humbled himself and served in this way, how much more ought we to serve? How much more ought we to be humble? Close with verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen.